Thanks, Brian. Thanks, worship team. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of kicking off our family life series in Wausau this year. Why don't we start with a word of prayer? Father, what a joy this just to gather together, to open up your word. Um, we ask that you'll guide our time, that you'll speak to us by the power of your word. Uh, we give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was asked to teach on the topic of singleness. Now, I got married in September, so I'm not single anymore. But since I've been married for the shortest amount of time of all of the pastors, apparently that makes me the expert resident or the resident expert on singleness, which isn't true. But I do remember uh, quite well what it was like to be single. It wasn't that long ago. And during my whole time uh, in college, I wasn't dating anyone for most of that time. So that led to some interesting stories. Let me share one of them. Um, there are a group of us friends that uh, every year we were jokingly offended by the holiday, Valentine's Day. It kind of seems a little exclusive, if you know what I mean. If you're in a relationship, you get to celebrate Valentine's Day, but everyone else is left to, to do whatever, right? So we renamed Valentine's Day to Independence Day, and uh, we celebrated we rejoiced in our independence by watching a movie and eating a ridiculous amount of ice cream. And I'm lactose intolerant, so that didn't end very well, right? Um, so at least for one day of the year, we were content with our singleness. But that wasn't always true the rest of the year. Uh, and for me and a lot of people that I've talked to um, that are unmarried, sometimes singleness can be a struggle in contentment we can have this longing, this desire to be married, to fill that missing piece of satisfaction, longing for contentment and a satisfied life. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm not single, so this message doesn't apply to me. So uh, you might go and grab a cup of cappuccino and sit in the lobby and wait for the next 35 minutes until the message is done. Now, before you do that, don't we all struggle with contentment? Don't we all long for satisfaction? I remember when I was 13, uh, all I wanted was my driver's license. And then when I got my driver's license, all I wanted was to go to college. And then when I got to college, all I wanted was to graduate. And then when we graduate, we can't wait until we get that perfect job. And then when we get that perfect job, we just look ahead to the, our vacation. And then when we get that vacation, we look ahead to the promotion and, and we look ahead to starting a family and look ahead to retirement. We're always looking ahead to the next thing. Why is that? Because I think we're looking for that thing, that person, that circumstance that can provide that satisfaction, that longing, that desire that each one of us have. Not that looking ahead to the future is a bad thing, but when we look ahead to the future and it handicaps us in the present, we have a problem. It reminds me of one of the most commonly taken out of context verses in all of Scripture, Philippians 4.13, says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great verse. But the Apostle Paul is not talking about winning the Super Bowl. He's not talking about cliff jumping. He's not talking about dominating a science test. Let me read our context just in 1 Corinthians 4.13. The verse before is verse 12. Paul says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul, he's talking about his circumstances. He's talking about his situation in life. And Paul, he wasn't married. He was single. One of those every circumstances in his life that he learned to be 
content. So whether Paul was hungry or full, whether he had a robust 401k or a dollar balance in his bank account, he learned to be content because he understood how to find his satisfaction because his satisfaction, it didn't come from his circumstances. Frankly, his satisfaction didn't come from his relationship status, but it came from Christ. So for us this morning, whether we're married or unmarried, single or dating, whether we're employed or unemployed, whether we're a parent with kids at home or an empty nester, all of us need to understand what it means to live a satisfied life and to live a content life and to find our satisfaction and our contentment in something other than our circumstances. So our message this morning is a lot broader than just singleness, though it does apply in that way. This is a text that we're going to look at this morning that talks to each of our hearts on how we can find satisfaction and contentment in every season of life. Because if we misplace our satisfaction, if we look for the wrong things to find our contentment and our satisfaction, then we're going to be constantly longing. We're never going to be satisfied. So this morning, we're going to look at the prescription for a satisfied life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 36 to 38. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're not looking at the Christmas text this morning. Christmas was last month. We'll save the Christmas narrative for next December. But we're going to look at a couple verses uh, towards the end of Luke 2 that are often overlooked uh, as we look at this chapter. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me in Luke 2, verses 36 to 38, and the text will also be behind me on the screen. Here's what Luke said. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, why don't we start just by walking through our text? Luke says, there was a prophetess, Anna, prophetess, that's an interesting word, but it occurs more often in Scripture than we might expect. In total, there are about 13 women in the Bible that are called a prophetess. And a prophet or a prophetess, by definition, is someone who conveys divine truths, who's someone who shares words on behalf of God. And we're not exactly sure what that looked like in the case of Anna. We don't know how often she prophesied. We don't know what exactly she said when she prophesied, but she conveyed these divine truths. And Luke says that uh, she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We're not really sure why Luke says that, but probably just to legitimize his account. And Luke says that she's advanced in years. Luke is being polite. He's calling her old, right? The Greek is redundant. It literally says she was very old in her many days. And in your Bible, there might be a, a little footnote here at the bottom that talks about an alternate reading of this text. And we're not sure if Anna was 84 years old or if she was 104, because the Greek, uh, it's not quite clear. We could read it either way. But at the end of the day, the main thrust, the big idea that Luke is getting at here is that Anna was not young. She had, at a conservative estimate, been a widow for 64 years. That's a long time. And that might just sound like a number, but Luke says that every day in her widowhood, she was at the temple worshiping God with fasting and prayer. Luke says she doesn't leave the temple. That's probably an expression, hyperbole, because in reality, she couldn't live at the temple. There wasn't a spot for her to stay. 
every time the doors were open, she was there. Something like we would say, uh, virtually every time the doors were open at church, she was, she was there. He was at the gym all the time. Now, this isn't a New Year's resolution. It's not, well, he was at the gym all the time in January and then never showed up after that. No, what, what Luke is saying is that for 64 years, and it was at the temple virtually all the time. Anna, she's an incredible woman of God and a prime role model for all of us. And we have to see that her singleness, instead of being an obstacle, it became the foundation of 60 years of faithfulness to the Lord. And I'm sure this might be understandable if her singleness was by choice, if she just never had this desire to be married and and wanted to, to basically live at the temple and serve the Lord her entire life. But Anna experienced loss, as some here have, at one of the deepest possible levels. She lost her spouse. And her singleness, it was not by choice. She experienced that pain of loss. Because not everyone who is single wants to be single. It's what we call unwanted singleness. And sure, there might be some Christians who feel gifted in singleness. Maybe they don't have a desire to be married, and uh, they're not burning with passion, as the Apostle Paul says, and they, they feel like, I'm, I'm just going to be single, and I'm going to use my gifts to serve the church. But at least initially, that wasn't Anna. She was not single by choice. And that desire to get married and, and have a family, that's a great thing. That's a God-given thing. But sometimes when we plead with God to allow us to get married or we plead with God to give us a family, sometimes his answer is no or wait. That's beyond our understanding. And let me pause there for just a second. So when someone loses a spouse or maybe they just have the desire to get married, but that's not a reality, that can result in some really deep pain and some really deep loneliness. And we don't want to pretend that sort of situation is easy. It reminds me of a Scottish pastor named George Matheson. He was in a serious relationship. He was engaged to be married at the age of 20. Everything was going great. And suddenly, George became blind. And his fiance broke off the engagement and said, you know, this just isn't worth it. And I can imagine that for Matheson, he was heartbroken. He was frustrated. He faced rejection. And that's what we call unwanted singleness. And even as I work with our young adults here at our church, I've heard over and over again the pain of unwanted singleness. And the world that we live in doesn't necessarily make that any easier. At least the generation that I've grown up in has lived in this Disney happily ever after culture where every princess needs to find her prince charming. In order for us to live a satisfied life, we need to be married, we need to be dating, we need to be engaged, we need to find that perfect person. And some of those ideas have crept their way into the church. Marriage is a great thing. And it's a gift from God that's designed to bring Him glory. But marriage is not the ultimate thing. And it's not an ultimate tool for our satisfaction. But marriage is created by God to bring Him glory. We need to see marriage as a gift. At the same time, we need to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. He said that he wished everyone was like he was single. Now we understand that if all of us were single, our society would evaporate in a generation. So Paul wasn't saying that we all need to be single, but Paul was saying that to legitimize singleness, to say that people who are single that are unmarried, they're not second-class citizens. 
But singleness is a tool. It's an opportunity to maximize our involvement within the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that singleness is easy. But when we start to view singleness as an opportunity rather than a burden, then our perspective begins to change. So for those of us that are married and maybe have a family, I think it's helpful to put ourselves in the shoes of our unmarried uh, family and friends who might come to church by themselves, might spend a holiday or a weekend alone. We have to remember that when we become a Christian, God adopts us into his family. He calls us his sons and his daughters. That's grace. So here at Highland, we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the ultimate priority in our relationships. So here at family, or here at Highland, we can be a family that is welcoming both to married and unmarried people. And if, if we're married, maybe that means that we can invite somebody who's sitting alone to come sit with our family. Or we can invite somebody to join us for lunch after the service. Having people over at our homes over the weekend or over the holidays. When I was in college, I uh, wasn't in a relationship, wasn't married. And it took me a little bit to get plugged into a good church down in Ohio. But when I couldn't come back to Wausau over breaks and vacations, um, my pastor at the church I went to uh, kind of adopted me into his family. He and his wife and their two kids, they'd let me stay at their house. I'd have lunch with them after church. Uh, they let me store all my stuff in their basement. And they welcomed me in as part of their family. Because as Christians, our relationship status shouldn't define our relationships. Because we're first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have the opportunity to develop deep and meaningful relationships with one another. So this church, our community at Highland, should be the most welcoming community for unmarried people in the entire city of Wausau. But Anna, even in the midst of her singleness, she didn't feel second rate or incomplete. She took unwanted singleness not as a burden, but a blessing, not as an obstacle, but an opportunity. And she rose above her circumstances and chose something, rather someone greater. Because for all of us, Anna provides the picture of a satisfied life. She provides the prescription of contentment. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to suggest that we all quit our day jobs and take all of the books out of Pastor Jeff's office and turn his shelves into bunk beds. Though a church lock-in would be really fun, right? But instead, whether we're single or married, whether we're working or retired, whether we're busy parents or empty nesters, for whatever situation we find ourselves in in life, Anna provides three prescriptions for contentment, three prescriptions for a satisfied life. So let me read verse 38 from our text again. It says this, And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, in order to understand this verse, we have to understand a little bit of the context of Luke 2, what it means by that very hour. Because right before this account of Anna, we have the account of Simeon, an older man just like Anna who basically lived at the temple. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that before he died, he would meet the Messiah. So every day that Simeon came into the temple, he asked himself the question, could today be the day? Could today be the day when I meet the Messiah? So on this day, Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus walk into the temple. And the moment that Simeon sets his eyes on that little baby, he knows that he's the Messiah. 
So he weaves his way through the temple courtyard, and, and he finds the baby, and he grabs him. It says he holds him, and I picture that Simeon grabs Jesus, just hoists him up in the air, sort of like the Lion King, right? And instead of singing the circle of life, this is what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Well, Simeon said that his eyes had seen God's salvation. And he did more than just recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, but he believed that salvation was coming through Christ to the entire world. And I'm sure that he wasn't quiet about it. He made quite the scene in the temple courtyard. Imagine walking into church this morning, and uh, there's an older gentleman who grabs this eight-day-old baby in the lobby, hoists him up in the air, and starts shouting this blessing. I mean, that would cause quite the scene, right? And of course, Anna in the temple courtyard, she sees this happen. And instead of dismissing Simeon as senile and crazy, right, she too believes that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that was coming as the Savior of the world. Which is incredible. Because before the miracles, before Jesus' teaching, before his death, before his resurrection, Anna believes that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but her Messiah. And how does seeing Jesus and recognizing her salvation elicit a response? Well, she responds with gratitude. It says, giving thanks to God and speaking of him to everyone who is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that's our first prescription for a satisfied life, is gratitude. Because Anna helps us understand that gratitude changes our attitude. In the midst of circumstances, Anna found something that all of us can be constantly thankful for, our salvation. Because when we turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ and we're saved, nothing, no one can take away the hope of our salvation from us. So no matter, no matter what we're going through, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we can always be thankful for our salvation. We can always be grateful for God's saving grace. But it's easy for us to take God's good gifts, even a gift such as great as salvation, for granted. Even as we mature in our faith, we never graduate from thanking God for the goodness of the gospel. We never graduate for rejoicing in our salvation. So if we feel that sometimes we have a bad attitude, or maybe we feel pessimistic, we feel anxious, maybe if we don't feel satisfied with life, a great place to start is to cultivate a heart of gratitude. It's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 136 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for, the stead for His steadfast love endures forever. Because the psalmist, he exhorts us, he commands us to give thanks, to cultivate a heart of thankfulness, because God is good and He saved us because of His steadfast love. I had a friend uh, challenge me once to end each day with being thankful. Just taking a journal and writing down 10 specific things that I was thankful for, and not just generic thankfulness, but um, specific things and attribute that thankfulness to God. So I did that for a couple weeks, just ended each day with being thankful. And I was amazed how that affected my attitude. 
and how I remembered things throughout my day that I'd somehow forgotten, and I was able to, to thank God for those things. Maybe that's something that we could try this week. Because when we're truly thankful and grateful for something, we talk about it. That's exactly what Anna did. When she recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, she was quick to to go and talk to everyone around her about the redemption that she had discovered. Because when we're truly grateful for something, then we're going to be quick to talk about it. I mean, think of your favorite Christmas present that we've ever gotten. For me, one of my favorites was uh, a guitar that my parents got me in high school. This was like the first real musical instrument that I got. It smelled like a real guitar, right? In reality, it wasn't that nice, but to me as a 14-year-old, it was a pretty awesome present. And I was so quick to, to thank my parents. I was so quick to uh, show my friends and to play the guitar and to practice because I was thankful for that gift. And the gift of salvation that you and I have received is so much greater than a guitar or a new phone or a new car or whatever else we might get around the holidays. Because we've received God's gift of salvation, then we should be eager to talk about it with others. It's what we call evangelism. I'm reminded about what Pastor Jeff mentioned a couple weeks ago. What would happen if we each committed just to pray for one person every day this year that they might be saved? What would happen if with Pastor Dave, we pray that God by His grace would allow us to lead one person to Christ this year? I mean, imagine if God allows us by His grace, each of us, to lead one person to Christ. I mean, we would need to add an expansion to our building. It would be incredible to see what God would do if we would use this gift of salvation and share it with one another. So let's allow God to work through us this year as we share our faith. Because our gratitude, it propels our evangelism. But more than that, it propels our worship. Listen to what the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, our salvation. And thus, therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's our second prescription for a satisfied life is worship. And we see that pattern of worship from Anna long before she had recognized Jesus as the Messiah. She worshiped. She's at the temple every day worshiping with fasting and prayer. That's exactly what our text says in Luke chapter 2. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna's life was filled with worship. It was characterized by worship. It was worship-filled. But for us, the word worship can come with some preconceived notions that might make it a little difficult to understand. Because sometimes we limit worship to the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. We say things like, well, why don't you come uh, to worship with us? Or why don't you stand in worship? Now, is this, are the songs that we sing, is what we do here on Sunday morning worship? Absolutely. And we sang some great songs this morning. Words like, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, worthy is your name. But is worship just the songs that we sing? Absolutely not. Worship is so much more than that. Because the word worship comes from the old English word worthship. Literally, it means to ascribe worth, to ascribe glory to someone or something. So worship is anything that you and I do that ascribes worth, that ascribes glory to God. Because we were created to worship something. And if we aren't worshiping God, then we're going to be worshiping something that He created. 
But when God takes the highest place of priority in our life, when we worship Him as the ultimate thing, then we begin to lead a satisfied life. But on the other hand, when we worship something other than God, when we worship something that God created, then we're going to be left empty and longing every single time. You know, and that's true for all of us, regardless of our relationship status. Because if we're married, we could look to our spouse to provide that ultimate satisfaction. If we're unmarried, then we might look to the idea or the concept of a spouse to provide that ultimate satisfaction. And we can find our satisfaction. We can worship just about anything from appearance to relationships to our vocation to money to popularity. Not that those things are wrong, but when those things take the ultimate place, the ultimate priority of God in our life, when we look to the things that God has created to provide our ultimate satisfaction, we worship them and we invert God's design. So if we want to live a satisfied life, then God must be in that top place of priority receiving the ultimate worship in our life. And I know that sounds ambiguous, so let's get practical for just a second. How can we grow in our worship this year? I think Anna helps us understand. First of all, for her, it meant that she was constantly in prayer. Prayer. Maybe that's somebody's New Year's goal for 2019. What a great goal to grow in our prayer, to grow in our conversation with God. And prayer is difficult because we're talking to someone that we can't see. But I don't think I've ever met a Christian that is completely satisfied in their prayer life. But growing, is prayer, growing in prayer is so important because prayer is our lifeline. It's our communication to our Creator. And we can worship God through prayer by treating Him as God when we pray. Sometimes it's easy to treat God as a genie in a bottle by just asking Him for things. But when we treat God as God, we worship Him in our prayer. Our prayer time should be filled with adoration, by praising God for who He is, maybe by recognizing His attributes and worshiping Him for what He's done. Our times in prayer should also be filled with thanksgiving, by recognizing the good gifts that God has given us. And when we pause and step back, we'll see so many things to be thankful for. Our prayer time should be filled with thanksgiving, with worship, with adoration. One way we can grow in our worship is through prayer. But second, we also see that Anna practiced regular fasting. Now, fasting might sound like a a big endeavor, uh, but I don't think fasting is just for the spiritual giants of this world. I think if we're a Christian, any of us could participate in fasting. And we use the term fasting to generally to abstain from eating food. And in our world today, sometimes I'll hear people describe fasting as abstaining from just about anything. The most common would be uh, a social media fast. And, you know, I think a lot of us could probably use a social media fast. But as we look at Scripture, fasting is pretty much exclusively used to describe abstaining from food. So that's how I want to talk about it this morning. So by definition, fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose, to deepen our relationship with Christ. Because when we abstain from food, then we demonstrate and even remind ourselves of our complete dependence on God, and those hunger pains serve as a reminder to pray. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, fasting is something that Jesus expected of us. He said, and when you pray, he didn't, or, and when you fast, and He didn't say, and if you fast. And even when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus fasted for 40 days. Don't worry, I'm not going to recommend that all of us do a 40-day fast. But the point of fasting, it's not self-torture. The goal of fasting isn't to feel hungry or to lose weight. No, the point of fasting is spiritual, 
to use the time that we would normally eat to pray and using those feelings of hunger throughout the day to remind us to pray. I think it's helpful to have a, a very specific purpose when we fast, maybe to pray for the salvation of, of someone that doesn't know Christ or to pray over a difficult decision that we're going to make or maybe to spend that time uh, specifically thanking God for one of His attributes. Now, I'll admit, this is a tough one for me. I'm not naturally inclined to enjoy skipping meals, uh, and I don't really like the feeling of hunger. This is tough, and uh, I will find just about any excuse to, to not practice this discipline in my life. But when we don't fast, uh, I think we're, we're missing out on a deeper relationship with Christ. So here's a challenge for all of us this week. Uh, what, what if we just take one day this week to fast? I think a 24-hour fast is a, a practical place to start. Eat breakfast one day, and then skip lunch and dinner, and eat breakfast the next day. You know, if that sounds too daunting, then maybe we could just skip lunch one day this week and to take that lunch hour and devote that hour to prayer and then use those feelings of hunger through the afternoon to remind us to pray. Because fasting would be a great way for us to grow in our worship in 2019. Now, our prescription for a satisfied life is almost complete. Gratitude and worship, but the third thing that we need is anticipation. Like Simeon, Anna was anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. She was a student of the Hebrew Scriptures. She knew that the Messiah could come any moment. And I can imagine that every day she went to the temple, she wondered, could today be the day? Could today be the day when I meet the Messiah? Anna was longingly waiting the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in the world, and she recognized and believed in Jesus as her Savior. And as Christians today, we can do the same thing. Though we're not longing for Jesus' first coming, we're not longing for the incarnation, but Jesus promised that He'd come back. We're longing for the second coming. We are anticipating glorification. And we must long for and anticipate that day when Jesus comes back for us, that day when we will behold the face of our Savior and we'll see the most beautiful thing that we have ever seen, that day when there will be no more pain and no more tears and no more sorrow and no more crying, and we will be with Jesus. And in that moment, we'll be fully satisfied. Because we can't be fully satisfied this side of heaven, but when we're with Christ, we will find our full satisfaction. So like Anna, we can anticipate the return of Christ. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus' return is imminent, meaning that it could happen at any moment. So are we ready? Are we prepared for the return of Christ? Because the world that we live in can distract us so much from remembering Jesus' return. Basketball practice, family obligations, work engagements, social media can all cause us just to forget that Jesus could return right now. That's exactly what... John says in his first letter, in John chapter 2, verse 28, he said, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Because if we aren't walking in obedience, then we might fear Jesus coming. Just like the driver speeding down Highway 29 is going to fearfully anticipate a cop around the next corner. For the student that doesn't study at all for her final exam, she's going to fearfully anticipate getting that grade back next week. In the same way, if we're not walking with obedience to what Jesus has commanded us to do, then we might fearfully anticipate His 
return. But when we're abiding with Christ, when we're walking in obedience to Him, then we don't have to be afraid of His coming. We can be excited and we can joyfully anticipate the coming of our Savior when He'll come back and make all things new. So whether or not we're celebrating Valentine's Day or Independence Day one month from tomorrow, I think each of us can grow in our satisfaction. Each of us can grow in our contentment. Gratitude, worship, anticipation are Anna's three prescriptions for a satisfied life. And when we look to God to provide our satisfaction, both here and ultimately in eternity, our relationship status is irrelevant because God is what matters most. So let's be a church community that's grateful for our salvation, that enables us to worship with anticipation. Let's pray. Father, enable each of us to find our satisfaction, our contentment in you and in you alone, not to look to the things of this world, not to look to the things that you've created to fill that void, but to look to you and to grow in our gratitude and our thankfulness and to grow in our worship and ultimately to grow in our anticipation, longing, looking ahead to that day when Jesus will return and make everything new. So, Father, whatever situation we find ourselves in this morning, teach us to be content. In Jesus' name, amen.